0: The, uh, the schedule for my sermon series in Isaiah is that we're supposed to be doing in Isaiah chapter 21 this week, but again, I'm going to divert from my, my scheduled time. Um, it's been an interesting 24 to 48 hours in my life, and somebody many years ago said congregations suffer because they have to go with whatever the pastor's heart is. It may not necessarily, look what they're feeling, but it's what the pastor's feeling, and um, it's been interesting. I uh, I, I try to backtrack. Have you ever had a train of thought that you know you're you're thinking about something and you think, how in the world did I get here? And you back up. Well, what made me think about that? And you back up again. And what what made me think about that? Until so you try to, you go. I started over here and I ended up over here. How in the world did that happen? And for me, that's pretty much what's happened the last 48 hours or so. I have a goal of trying to read uh, one book a week this year. Which doesn't sound like an overwhelming thing. For some, reading 100 books in a year is not a problem. For some, reading two books a year is a problem. And I, for me, I'm having to be intentional to Stick with it. And I actually, when I was in Bible college, there was a professor, his name was Gerald Garcy, and he, in, in the holiness class that he was teaching, he told us that at any given point in his life, he had upwards of five books going at the same time. And I was like, how? How can you even think and follow along the process of, of each author's intent and line of thought? But quite honestly, I had four books going at once. And so my intent over the last 48 hours was to get through those books so that I could get on to the other books that I really want to read, but I'm I'm just that that mentally ill enough that I can't I can't just drop a book that I started, I've got to keep it all the way through to the end. Even if I don't want to read it, I've got to finish it. That's just the way I am. So I was reading through about four books the last 48 hours, and I somehow, some way, and I, I tried to go back to figure out how I got there. I cannot figure out how I got there, but I was recommended in this reading that I was doing to read a book called Knight, Night. N I G H T. Written by a man named Eleazar Wiesel. Okay? I had never even heard the name before. I've lived on the earth 57 years. I've never heard the name of this man before. But for whatever reason, I read this or or somehow got pointed to it in my reading. And it said it's one of the most life-changing books you'll ever read. And I love reading World War II era, Holocaust era, Jewish memorial uh, things. And so I went ahead and, and found the book online, bought it, downloaded it to my Kindle, and I literally read through the entire book this past. Well, actually, I read through it all day yesterday. I, I just couldn't put it down. And <clears throat> the story of Night is an autobiographical story written by Eliezer Weissel and or Visel is actually how it's. I keep. I was listening online to try and hear how it was pronounced. Um, and he was 15 years old, living in Hungary, when his family was rounded up by the Nazis and taken to Auschwitz. And he tells the story that, um, it's powerful, if you have an opportunity and go online to see videos of interviews of him, uh, he tells the story that his last, last vision of seeing his mother and his youngest sister, who was only seven years old at the time, um, they, they were separated as they got off the train at Auschwitz. He and his father had to go to the left. He and his her, she and her mother went off to the right with the grandmother and the two older sisters. But he never saw his mother and his little younger sister again because they were immediately sent to the crematorium as they got off the train. And so he was in, being interviewed by Oprah Winfrey, and she said, "You've said in the past that the that the only time you cry when you're relating this story is when you think about your youngest sister. Why?" And he said, "I cannot get the image." of the red coat that she was wearing, walking away, hand in hand with my mother. She had received that coat as a birthday gift that last year. And she was proud of that coat. And in all of that darkness and all of that gray, there was this bright red just walking away. It's the last time I ever saw my daughter, I mean my sister. And he said, and she represents to me all of the children. He said, I was so negatively impacted, and I won't get into the gory details. If you read the book, it's horrible. It's horrible the things that he experienced, the things that he saw. But I was, I was genuinely moved. It took me about four or five hours to read through that book yesterday. And I then finished the book, and I was going to get moving on to another book because I had a couple, three that I needed to finish. But um, I just took a break, and I went on to, uh, to Facebook or something, and I saw Eliezer Wiesel die today. And I went, What? What? And I literally realized as I was looking at it, he died while I was reading his story. And I it just gripped me because I had come to I had really come to, to, to identify with this person and all that he had gone through and the pain that he'd gone through. And so then I, I started then looking through other things that he had written and um then I, I ended up downloading his last book. Which was actually a reflection of the days following his open heart surgery that he had to go through back in 2012. Two sequels after. Nine. Yes, there's night, dawn, and day, and uh, he's written about 60 books. Um, but I was reading through Open Heart last night, and then again I finished it first thing this morning when I got up, and it's just been gripping my heart. And I was praying, Lord, I don't, I'm not supposed to go off my thing but I just needed to share this with you because I've been processing it for the last 24 hours it's just been really gripping me my very first thought when I heard did he that he died was oh no did he know the Lord is he in heaven and I was reminded of a word that was written by CS Lewis in one of his chronicles of Narnia when Lucy, Pevensey, is at the end of the book, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. Lucy and her cousin Eustace and her brother Edmund are just about to come back into our world leaving Narnia. And Lucy says to Aslan, who is the Jesus figure in the story, Aslan, is Edmund going to get, I mean, is Eustace going to ever be able to come back to Narnia? Because Aslan had just told Lucy and Edmund that they would never be coming back to Narnia. And she said, well, what about uh, Eustace? Will he be able to come back? And Aslan turns to Lucy and says, now Lucy, do you really need to know that? And what I was thinking about this morning, reflecting on Eliezer Weisel's death, and my thought was, God, is he in heaven? I mean, he was devoted to God. He was, he, was, he was, as a young kid, he was in the, he was in the, the, the Sabbath school or whatever they call it. I, I can't remember what it's called now. But he was in his training with the scriptures during the day and at night. He met with the rabbi during the day and did the traditional studies. And then he met privately with another person studying the Mishnah and at nighttime And his father was trying to discourage him from doing that, wanting to go do something that was productive with his life. But he said, I just feel so called that I have to be involved with God and God's word. And he was just drawn to God. So then I thought, God, he spent his entire life, literally, he spent his entire life helping the world to not forget the Holocaust and what had happened to the Jewish people. And he said, my whole life is to keep people from forgetting, to never, ever let it happen again. And he said, that's, he said I, I, literally in, in, in the book Open Heart, he said, I have spent the last 40, 50 years trying to keep the world from ever having this happen again. And as I sit reflecting, because he's just had open heart surgery and he's facing his mortality, he said, my thought is, did I, ever, did I really do enough? Did I really do enough? The man won a Nobel Peace Prize for all the work that he did. He he was knighted by the Queen in England for what he did. He received the, the, the highest medal that the United States government could give out for all that he did. But his heart was, did I do enough? And my thought was, is he in heaven? Because he was Jewish and he never professed knowing Jesus as his Savior And Jesus literally said to me, reminding me of what Aslan said to Lucy, do you really need to know that? Do you really need to know that? Why is that important? And that's where I've been chewing on for the last number of hours, since about 5 o'clock this morning. One of the things that you need to hear from his book, Night, is this. This is one of the most most quoted passages from the book. The one that you'll see everywhere in the next coming days because of his death. He's in the concentration camp. They have just passed, um, well, I, I can't say everything because like I said it's just too horrible. But he said, um, my heart was about to burst. There I was face to face with the angel of death. And then he, then he says, never shall I forget that night, the first night in camp, that turned my life into one long night, seven times sealed. Never shall I forget the smoke. Never shall I forget the small faces of the children whose bodies I saw transformed into smoke under a silent sky. Never shall I forget those flames that consumed my faith forever. Never shall I forget the nocturnal silence that deprived me of all eternity, of the desire to live. Never shall I forget those moments that murdered my God and my soul and turned my dreams to ashes. Never shall I forget those things, even if I were condemned to live as long as God himself. Never. Never. And there's two telling statements in this quote that just ripped me as I was reading his story. Never shall I forget those flames that consumed my faith forever. And never shall I forget those moments that murdered my God and my soul and turned my dreams to ashes. And I thought, how could he have lived through those years in the concentration camp they're seeing everything that he saw experiencing everything that he experienced and say that his faith was dead and that his god was murdered but if you read further in his story he says that he still practiced the religion when the, when the evening prayers were being said, he would still say them. When the blessings on the holy days were being done, he would still participate in them. And he said, I struggled so much because I was so angry at the silence of God and how he could allow this to happen to me and my people. And at the same time, I was participating in that which I knew that kept me connected. And he spent that whole time doing that And then, after he was rescued, and again, I don't want to go into all the the horrors, but when he was finally rescued, years later, he finally was able to connect with his older two sisters. And so the three of them continued to live on. They had their own lives. Eli, Eli, excuse me, Eli, ended up marrying and having a son and having grandchildren and He ended up ultimately being a professor at Boston University in Boston. But he wrote an editorial for the New York Times. And that editorial was written and published in 1997. And he titled this editorial A Prayer for the Days of Awe. And I want to read you his editorial. Master of the universe, let us make up. It is time. How long can we go on being angry? More than 50 years have passed since the nightmare was lifted. Many things, good and less good, have since happened to those who survived it. They learned to build on ruins. Family life was recreated. Children were born. Friendship struck. They learn to have faith in their surroundings, even in their fellow men and women. Gratitude has replaced bitterness in their hearts. No one is as capable as thankfulness as they are. Thankful to anyone willing to hear their tales and become their ally in the battle against apathy and forgetfulness. For them, every moment is grace. Oh, they do not forgive the killers and their accomplices, nor should they, nor should you, master of the universe, But they no longer look at every passerby with suspicion, nor do they see a dagger in every hand. Does this mean that the wounds in their souls have healed? That they will never never heal. As long as a spark of the flames of Auschwitz and Treblinka glows in their memory, so long will my joy be incomplete. But what about my faith in you, Master of the Universe? I now realize I never lost it. Not even over there during the darkest hours of my life. I don't know why I kept on whispering my daily prayers and those one reserved for the Sabbath and for the holidays, but I did recite them, often with my father and on Rosh Hashanah Eve with hundreds of inmates at Auschwitz. Was it because the prayers remained a link to the vanished world of my childhood? But my faith was no longer pure. How could it be? It was filled with anguish rather than fervor, with perplexity more than piety. In the kingdom of eternal night, on the days of awe, which are the days of judgment, my traditional prayers were directed to you as well as against you. Master of the universe, what hurt me more, your absence or your silence? In my testimony, I have written harsh words, burning words about your role in our tragedy. I would not repeat them today, but I felt them then. I felt them in every cell of my being. Why did you allow, if not enable, the killer day after day, night after night to torment, kill, and annihilate tens of thousands of Jewish children? Why were they abandoned by your creation? These thoughts were in no way destined to diminish the guilt of the guilty. Their established culpability is irrelevant to my problem with you, master of the universe. In my childhood, I did not expect much from human beings, but I expected everything from you. Where were you, God of kindness, in Auschwitz? What was going on in heaven at the celestial tribunal while your children were marked for humiliation, isolation, and death only because they were Jewish? These questions have been haunting me for more than five decades. You have vocal defenders, you know. Many theological answers were given me, such as, God is God. He alone knows what he's doing. One has no right to question him or his ways. Or, Auschwitz was a punishment for European Jewry's sins of assimilation and or Zionism. And, well, isn't Israel the solution? Without Auschwitz, there would never have been no in is- Israel. I reject all these answers. Auschwitz must and will forever remain a question mark only. It can be see- conceived neither with God nor without God. At one point... I began wondering whether I was not unfair with you. After all, Auschwitz was not something you came down that came down ready made from heaven. It was conceived by men, implemented by men, staffed by men, and their aim was to destroy not only us, but you as well. Ought we not to think of your pain too, watching your children suffer at the hands of your other children? Haven't you also suffered? as we Jews now enter the high holidays again, preparing ourselves to pray for a year of peace and happiness for our people and all people, let us make up, Master of the Universe. In spite of everything that happened, yes, in spite, let us make up. For the child in me, it is unbearable to be divorced from you for so long. Let me repeat those last two sentences, three sentences. As we Jews now enter the high holidays again, preparing ourselves to pray for a year of peace and happiness for our people and all people, let us make up, master of the universe. In spite of everything that happened? Yes, in spite. Let us make up. For the child in me, it is unbearable to be divorced from you. So long. And that was done in 1997. And then I read his book, Open Heart, which was done just a few years ago. And now he's dead. And what I see here, what I see here was a young person's face with horrors beyond anything he could comprehend. And the God that he had put his faith and his trust in wasn't doing anything to solve it, fix it, rescue them. And all he could do was go, why? Why? I put my hope and my faith and my trust in you and you alone. I, I depend on you for everything. I have given my life, literally, this 15-year-old kid spent every waking hour reading God's Word, discussing it with scholars, learning what he could do, because he was eventually going to be a rabbi. And it was like all of the props came out from underneath him. And there was nobody giving him any solid answers. And he wasn't hearing from God, and he didn't know what to do. And he literally just floundered through all those years in that horror. But he held on. He held on, if nothing else, to the traditions. And the end result was, as we just heard, 50 years later, he says, let's make up, God. I can't. I can't be divorced from you. I can't. You are real. I believe you. I know you're real. I know. Even, Even through all these 50 years of turmoil and torment, I know that you are. And I can't even bear the thought of being divorced from you. What I hear there is a man who loved God with all of his heart and all of his mind and all of his soul and all of his strength. I cannot tell you with any biblical foundation that this man, who never quote unquote named Jesus as his Messiah, is sitting in the throne room of God, worshiping God Almighty, the Father, of, uh, the God of Isaac, I mean Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But I can tell you that his experience is the experience we Christians will be facing. The word of God clearly tells us that a time is coming when we will no longer be tolerated. When we will be the target. When we will have to run and hide. When it will literally cost a full day's wages just to buy a loaf of bread. And the warning is real. It's been in the word of God for thousands of years. We in the West have been very complacent. I'm not talking about you people individually. I I know all of you and I believe all of you are very sincere in your faith. But the reality is, there are those Christians who come to church every Sunday, but when it really gets hard, will they be able to hold on to their faith? In the same way that this man held on to horrors. Because the Bible does tell us when the end times come that many will fall away. Many will turn from everything they professed and go totally away from God. And I, I'll tell you the truth. I I've spent I was talking with, with Red Finger, a friend of mine a couple weeks ago, a week and a half ago, last week, I don't know. Anyway We were talking, and I said back when I was going through my master's program, I really, it was like all the props got knocked out from underneath my faith. And I struggled for the better part of a year, standing in this pulpit saying, thus says the Bible, but not sure what I believed about thus says the Bible. And I felt so conflicted, because I didn't want to be a liar, but at the same time, I didn't know what I believed. And I have finally, I think, gotten a good solid foundation under, my, under me. And I feel strong and I feel empowered and I feel very confident that anything that comes, there's no question. I am a servant of the Most High God. I am going to walk proudly to a gallows if necessary to honor my God, if that's what he asks of me. But the reality is, I have settled that question before the horror starts. And my concern is, again, I'm not talking to you guys because you're here on a holiday weekend. And I'm not talking to people that aren't here because they went down to camp because that's not what I mean. But what I'm saying is there are people that you interact with on a regular basis who say they love Jesus and say they pray and say they read their Bibles. But when it comes down to it, What is really going to happen? And those are the folks you need to be praying for right now. Because this life that we just looked at didn't have a clue what was coming. They really didn't. They were shocked and surprised when the order came for them to evacuate their home and be loaded into a train. They never dreamed that it was going to happen. They were hearing rumors, but they just couldn't honor, couldn't own it. We've been given prophecy, rumors, if you will. Signs of the times. And quite honestly, folks, if you really start doing a real real dutiful study, it's looking very close that these could be the end times. But if they are, that means there's some bad times ahead for Christians. And we need to be prepared and ready. And we need to have the questions settled so that when the hard times come, we're not scrambling, trying to find, grabbing onto something to hold onto because we have a rock-solid foundation that we know, that we know, that we know beyond any shadow of a doubt. This is what I believe. And I will not be swayed from it. So, let's pray.